Well, believe it or not, this Sunday we finish our series in the book of Ephesians that we started last spring. Ironic that today feels like spring, isn't it? I don't know about you, but this has been such an encouraging letter to study for me. First, last spring, as we learned about our identity in Christ, and we wanted to be convinced of who we are in Christ in chapters 1 through 3, and then this fall, as we've been talking about what it means to live out our identity in Christ in chapters 4 through 6. And as we've said often, I want to say it one more time, uh, just in case you might be coming, we got to make sure we get the order of those things right. We, we talked about this a lot, right? Like, first I have to understand my identity in Christ before I can live out that identity for him. If I get the order wrong, my Christian life is going to lead to a lot of frustration and defeatism. I can't live a life of obedience in hopes to gain an identity with Christ. Otherwise, I'm always going to come up short. The amazing news of the gospel is God has given me the gift of a relationship with Christ. He's given these amazing things that come with that, and it's out of gratitude to that that I now live a life of obedience, and that's what we've been talking about for a better part of this year. Last week, we entered into the last section of this letter, and in case you weren't here, let let me remind you of what we learned. After spending chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, talking about how we are to live as Christians, Paul begins chapter 6, verse 10 with these words up on the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As Jeff reminded us last week, what that means is that living the Christ, the life Christ has called us to live isn't going to be a walk in the park. We have a very real enemy who wants to see us fail, who wants to see us falter. Now, the truth is, I don't know how many Christians believe this in their heart anymore today. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that we are in peacetime, not wartime. But as we saw last week, living the Christian life is a war. That's not all the Christian life is, don't get me wrong. It's much more than that, but it is always that, right? It is always a battle. It is always a fight to lay hold of what Christ has in store for us. If you've lived as a Christian for any length of a time, can I get an amen there? It's a battle. It's a fight. I was just around a small group table last Saturday. Pastor Brian had just spoken about this, and we were talking about this ongoing frustration. Like, I think I should have arrived by now. Like, why does this sin continue to bug me, Lord? Why does it continue to get in my life? You know who else that bothered? It bothered Paul. In Romans 7, he says, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why? Because we are in a battle. We are in a fight against someone who wants nothing more than to see us fail and falter. But the good news is, as we saw last week, God has equipped us with everything we need in order to win this battle. He has given us a full suit of armor that we can put on and take our stand against the devil's schemes. He has given us truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. He has given us his word. And as we close this series this morning, I want to tell you, that's not all God has given us. There's some more good news. He's armed us with two more powerful resources in our fight for our faith. And we're going to see this morning in this text, one of these resources is pretty straightforward. 
In fact, it should really be included within the armor of God. But another one is a little bit more hidden. But as I considered and prayed over this text, even though it's more implied than directly stated, I think it's imperative that we talk about it as we close this series this morning. Now, how important are these resources? I want to suggest to you that these two are the key to really unlock the whole armor of God in your life. In other words, I can dress myself up in truth and righteousness. I can know uh, the word of God. But unless I tap into these two things, I will often fail to live the life of victory Christ has enabled me to live. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to talk to you about what those resources are. I want to talk to you about how we often misunderstand these resources and then why God has given them to us. What's the purpose for giving us these resources? So take your Bible, if you would. The last time I'm going to say this in a while, probably, and turn it to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. And we say this every week. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in the seat in front of you, or maybe it's underneath you, and you can find Ephesians 6 on page 817. I encourage you, as we do every week, you know, be a first-hander in God's Word. See for yourself uh, what it says. Follow along uh, with what He's written for us in order to transform us. Would you join me in prayer as we open up His Word this morning? Lord, for 26 weeks we have looked at this powerful letter. And each week, in some form or fashion, we have prayed a very similar prayer. May it not be my words that we hear today, but would it be your word? Would you open our eyes, open our hearts? Let us put off anything that is hindering us this morning from coming into your presence and hearing from you. Let us look into these resources that you've graced us with, that you've given us for this fight, and let us put them on for your sake, for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first resource we've been armed with, and I tried to keep this as suspenseful as I could, you can even see on your notes there, is the thing we just did, which is prayer. Prayer. We are armed with prayer. Now, there's no doubt if you read through this section of the armor in God that prayer is intended to be included within that armor. In fact, in verse 18, uh, there really shouldn't have been a period after verse 17. Some of your translations have a period after verse 17 or even maybe a paragraph. Really, in Greek, there is no period there. There's no separation. It should read something more like this. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now read verse 18 out loud with me on your notes there. It says... And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Those two things are connected. Now, let me ask you a question. Consider this in your mind right now. What do you think the purpose of prayer is? How would you answer that? For years, I have taught and thought that the purpose of prayer is for us to be able to commune with God, to enjoy intimate fellowship with God, and I haven't changed my mind about that. That's absolutely one of the gifts of prayer, right? It's for us to have this intimate communion with the God of the universe, to come into his presence boldly. But I want to tell you this morning, that's not all prayer is. We learn in this passage that prayer is also a weapon that God has given us in our fight against the devil's schemes. Kent Hughes poetically describes it this way. He says, The enemy approaches. One thousand swords ring from their scabbards in dreadful symphony. The warrior stands motionless, breathing heavily. And then the Christian soldier does the most amazing thing. 
He falls to his knees in deep, profound prayer. Yes, there will be action. He will rise. His steel will flash. But all will be done in prayer, for prayer is primary. That's the message of verse 18, friends. If you want to engage in the fight for your faith, regardless of how well you think you're wearing the armor of God, how well you're wearing truth and righteousness and faith and salvation, how well you're regarded, uh, grounded in peace, how well you know the word of God, what it suggests that verses 17 and 18 are connected are that all of that needs to be done in a spirit of prayer. We don't enter into battle with our armor without first falling on our knees as Christ's soldier and praying. Is that how you view prayer? Do you view it as a primary resource in your fight against the devil's schemes? Is it the foundation upon which you stand as you put on his armor against your enemy? I believe too many believers, including myself, have missed this part of prayer. And again, the reason for that is because we don't really believe we're in a war. John Piper uses this illustration that was really helpful to me. I happened to be reading one of his books the last couple of weeks, and I say happened like this because it's no accident God wanted me to see this. I've been reading a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, and it really has nothing to do with the message I'm preaching this morning, but I know he wanted me to read this so that I could share this with you. It's a lengthy quote, so I put it up on the screen so you can follow along with me. He says, Probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Now this line really catches me. Until you know that life is a war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission. We learn in Ephesians that mission is live a life worthy of the gospel, right? Or in John 15, he says, go and bear fruit. Handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and says, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But he goes on and says, but what have millions of Christians done? We've stopped believing that we are in a war. There's no urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do at the walkie-talkie? And here's the part that really convicted me. We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. Ouch. Ouch. What's the purpose of prayer? To call upon God for more comforts in the dead den? No. Yes, it's to commune with God, to have fellowship with God, but what is one of the reasons we commune with God? It's so that he can arm us for the fight that we are in, in our faith. The Christian soldier fights on his or her knees, and if we want to take ground in this world for God's kingdom, it's got to start in prayer. It's got to be bathed in prayer. It's got to be covered in prayer. I've thought about this image a lot in my life. What's the difference between a bunker and a beachhead? If you're a you know anything about war, like World War II, what's the difference between a bunker and a beachhead? A bunker is something that you dig deep down into the ground in order to stay protected, right? If the bombs come flying, if you're in the bunker, you're going to be safe, you're going to be secure. 
A beachhead, on the other hand, is a defensive position that has the aim of taking more ground into the enemy's territory. So you build one beachhead in order to build another beachhead further into the enemy's territory. Now, what do you think is God's vision for the church? To build bunkers or to build beachheads? Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That's not bunker talk. That's not go hide yourself in church buildings and bunker down and protect yourselves. That's go and take ground against the enemy in this world. And that starts with prayer. And it ends with prayer. And it's covered in prayer all in between. Now, of course, the next question is how do I arm myself in that way? How how do I pray in such a way as to engage against the enemy in order to take beachheads for God's kingdom? In verse 18, Paul tells us how to pray in order to defeat Satan. I see five things here. Number one, we are told to pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. How does that take place? Does that seem a little weird to you? A little like, I'm going to pray in the Spirit. What are we talking about here? It doesn't have to be. I don't think it has to be confusing. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, we're told what it means to pray in the Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So all that saying is, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, as we learned about in chapters 1 through 3, that means you have the Spirit of the living God living inside of you. And if the Spirit is inside of you, you can join the Spirit in praying with you. The Spirit of God can infuse your prayers if you open yourself up to him. I don't think this needs to be that confusing. I'll just share with you what this has meant for me and my life. One of the best things I ever learned when it comes to prayer is before I ever open my mouth to take two, three seconds of silence and just invite the Spirit of God to help me during this time of prayer. Like if I'm standing with somebody up front after the service, I usually will have this little pause and say, like, I don't know what to say. I could make up some stuff. I'm pretty good at making up some stuff. But Lord, what do they need? What do they need me to pray for them? And I'm amazed sometimes of what comes out of my mouth. Or I can be in my own personal prayer time and, and, and the Spirit of God will simply reveal some people to me that I haven't thought about for weeks or months or years. Have you ever had this happen to you? Like, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, That's because the Spirit of Christ is living in me, and he knows these people need some cover right now. They need some help. They need some prayer support. Apart from the Holy Spirit's assistance, my prayers get so limited to my own reason and intuition, right? I think that's why many of us find our prayer lives so lifeless. But when I invite the Holy Spirit to join me in praying, he takes my prayers to a higher level. In fact, here's what you'll notice begins to happen, and I think this is why verses 17 and 18 are connected. He will begin to teach me how to pray the word of God, right? Those what they're connected. Arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit and pray on all occasions. And what happens is the more I know the word of God, the more I can be uh, praying according to God's word. And if I'm praying according to God's word, I can know that I'm praying according to God's will. Like the number one question is, how do I know what God's will is in my life? Well, he's given us a pretty handy resource in the Bible to know that. And I find often the more I know God's word, the more I begin to pray 
his words. Isn't that amazing? Because the Holy Spirit gave us this gift, this book. He wants us to pray it back to him. I'll talk more about this in a little bit. Second, we are told to pray on all occasions. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Paul's getting at here, but what I think he might say to us today is prayer isn't just for when you find yourself in a bind, right? The famous saying goes, even atheists pray in foxholes, and the idea that prayer has sort of become this emergency lifeline we use when we need to get God out of a pinch is pretty prevalent. Is there anything wrong with praying during those times? Absolutely not. But is that all we should pray? Is that the only times we should pray? Can you pray when you're happy? Of course you can. If you're hopeless, you can pray. We can pray in our work situations. We can pray when we're on vacation. Did you know that? We can pray when we're with friends. We can pray when we're with enemies. There is no situation, no occasion in your life that prayer can't be a part of. It's for all occasions. Third, we should pray with all kinds of prayer. What do you think he's meaning here? He's saying, your prayer life should be varied. There should be variation. You know, when I was a kid, you know what I thought prayer was? Asking God for stuff. The big vending machine in the sky. I pop in my prayer, out comes whatever it is I was asking for. We've taught at our church for many, many years here this acronym to help with praying all kinds of prayers called ACTS. A-C-T-S, right? A stands for adoration, C stands for confession, T stands for thanksgiving, and S stands for supplication, which is a fancy way of saying requests. It is based on the model of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Let's talk about those things because I just want to give you an opportunity to think like, yeah, my prayer life's kind of dull. Here's a way to expand it. Adoration is the place to begin in prayer. Almost always, I would say, it's the place to begin. You know why? Because we need to remind ourselves of who it is we're actually praying to. I can go through meaningless rituals pretty easy in my prayer. Jesus said, don't do that. Remember who you're coming to? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. Praise be to your name. And so we begin prayer by remembering whose presence we're coming into. We're coming to the Alpha and the Omega The Lord of the universe, we're coming to the one who made himself available to us. We're coming to Jesus who sits on the throne in victory and power. But he also loves us and invites us to him. We're his sheep. He is our shepherd. So I want to start prayer by remembering who it is I am coming to, recognizing that. Been trying to teach our kids the Acts prayer, and actually our son loves this kind of prayer every night. Like, can we do the Acts prayer? And I got to admit, this is the hardest one for them to understand, right? They think adoration and thanksgiving are the same thing. And so I've been thinking, like, how do I teach you the difference? How do I teach the difference between adoration and just thanking God for stuff? And the best way I can describe it is just say something you love about God. What's something you love about God? And so one of them might say, I love that you're faithful. Okay, right there, what are we doing? We're recognizing whose presence we're coming into. We're coming to the faithful one. I'm going to pray now to the faithful one. I love that you forgive. I'm coming to the one who has forgiven all sins. That's just a simple way to adore, but all of this is just a way to say we better start our prayers with recognizing who we're praying to. Secondly, we confess. This is a hugely important part of prayer. For listen, every time I come into the presence of the holy God, it's inevitable That sinful past thoughts and deeds are going to come to my mind and require confession. So i got to deal with those things. 
Now, I say the word confession, and I think 50% of the people sitting in this room right now have a negative feeling come. Can I just encourage you to start thinking of confession as a gift? It's one of the greatest gifts God has given us in our relationship with him. Let me explain. You ever, get in a, ever drinking a fruit smoothie and you get some fruit stuck in the straw? Isn't that the most annoying thing in the world? Because you can't get any more of the fruit. Can't get any more of the smoothie. I kind of view confession as a way to clean out the straw. Listen, you can't ever lose your relationship with Christ if you are a Christian. We learned that in Ephesians 1 through 3. You are sealed in Jesus Christ. However, can our sin get in the way of experiencing the kind of fellowship God wants us to have with him? Oh, you better believe it. And so what is confession? Confession is my gift, the gift God's given me to clean out the fruit, to make sure that the straw between me and God, forgive the metaphor here, but I think you're following, to make sure that that fellowship is functioning smoothly, right? So that I go before him pure as I ask for my requests, as I go before him as a clean instrument in his hands so that he can use me and hear me. Thanksgiving is a third kind of prayer. We always want to jump to asking God for things, but like the nine-heeled lepers, we often forget to thank God for what he's already done. In fact, one of the things we should thank him for almost every time we pray is for his forgiveness, that that is a certain thing. I just confess to you, and it is certain that I have received your forgiveness because I am in Christ, and it's in him I stand. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. Thank you. Thank you for that. And then finally, we make our requests or supplication. If that's all we do, our prayer life will be pretty poor, but it'll be pretty poor if we never do this either. Now, I'm going to share with you personally, I've been in a bit of a journey the last five years almost in my prayer life. I've found my prayer life to be a little bit wanting, and talking to many of you in our church family, I think this is a common thing. Uh, Can we just agree with that? It's just a common thing. Like, I think I could pray more. I think my prayers could be more powerful. I want to experience more of God's presence. And I discovered a resource along the way that I want to share with you. I get nervous anytime I share a resource because it's not for everybody. Some people aren't going to like it. But if you are feeling like this angst, like, I don't know how to pray all kinds of prayers, this is a resource I would encourage you to check out. It's called Face to Face. I think we have a picture of it by a, a gentleman by the name of Ken Boa. And literally, the reason I like this is because each prayer is basically, he'll take a scripture. Remember verses 17 and 18 are connected in this passage? So he'll take a scripture. For example, there's a section of adoration. He'll take a psalm of praise, and then he'll say, pray this psalm back to the Lord. So like sometimes if I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to say to adore God. Well, there's the word of God right there for me. God, you are faithful and just. I just read that. I adore you for that. I love you for that. I thank you for that. And he'll go through all kinds of prayers. There's prayers of confession. There's prayers of supplication. There's prayers of petition. There's prayers of thanksgiving. So I've just found that to be a super helpful tool because I've been frustrated in how limited I think sometimes my prayer life. Now, I'm going to warn you. It's not like a 30-second deal. This is like I'm going to harm myself by spending 20 to 30 minutes in serious prayer. I'm going to arm myself with that today. Fourth way we should pray, according to verse 18, is we should pray all the time. All the time. Not just in all occasions, but actually all the time. We are to pray always. That is, at all times of the day, sometimes even at night. This doesn't mean you have to always be saying prayers. Otherwise, you'd never get anything else done. But it does mean, listen, 
you can always be in communion with God, right? You can always be aware of his presence, no matter what it is you're doing or where you are. You can always keep that walkie-talkie turned on. You can develop the habit of practicing the presence of God in your life, no matter what you're doing or where you are. Can you pray when you're washing the dishes? Yeah, even if it's grumbling, you can do it. Can you pray when you're having a conversation with someone? Now, I'm a man. It's really hard for me to do two things at once, but I've learned how to do this. Like, I can be standing with somebody and like, Lord, I just want to pray for this conversation right now in my head. Would you be a part of this conversation? And then enter into the conversation. That's praying all the time. Pray says, Paul says, be alert. Jesus urges us to watch and pray. It's the same thing. Be alert of what's going on around you during the day. And be aware that God is present with you always. Not just when you like set aside that 20 or 30 minutes of prayer times. That's God's like, oh, good. Now I can be present with them. No. He's present with us all of the time. Finally, we're told to pray for all the saints. I know the NIV says, if you use that, all the Lord's people, but the word there is saints. And as we learned in the very first week of this series, March 1st, who are saints? All of God's people. If you are in Christ, if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, if he is your redeemer, if he is your savior, guess how he looks at you? As a saint. He's not talking about the super Navy SEAL Christians here, right? He's talking about all of us who have professed faith in Christ. So Paul is reminding believers here to remember all the saints. In other words, don't just limit your prayer life to you, yourself, and I. There's other people who are going through spiritual battles of their own. And they need us to come alongside of them and pray for them. They too are in a fight. Now, that can get a little bit overwhelming because there are literally millions of saints on the earth right now. Millions of Christians. So who specifically should I be praying for? Well, I suggest this goes back to the very first thing. When you pray in the Spirit, he'll bring the saints to mind. He'll bring the saints to mind who need special prayer. Or I know many of you have created like an intercession guide that you pray over every day. That's awesome. People God has laid on your heart, people you want to bring before the throne of a gracious Savior, pray for them. Continue to pray for others. Now, what should we be praying when we pray for others? Ooh, now we're getting into some serious stuff here. I want you to notice what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. This is so fascinating. Just after saying these five things, he says, Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, I just love these two verses here. Like We might read the book of Ephesians and sort of skip by them, but I want you to think about how cool this must have been for these Ephesians to have read this. Like, you've just been given this letter. You've just had this letter read to you by this guy, this apostle, who's like, live this way. I'm praying for you. And you'd be so encouraged. Like, I want to live my life for Christ. And then at the end, he says, I covet your prayers. I mean, isn't that cool? Like, Paul's not above needing prayer. And so he invites this church to join him and prayer. The other thing I love about these verses, though, is what Paul asks them to pray for, because it sure isn't what I would have asked them. If I'm writing this, I'm going to be asking, please pray for my release from prison, or please pray that I'm more comfortable in prison. But what does Paul pray for? Please pray that I will have boldness in prison, 
that when I open my mouth, I might proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Why does Paul pray for this? Well, remember back to John Piper's quote, because he knows prayer isn't an intercom system for more comfort in the den. Prayer is a way we arm ourselves for whatever battle it is God has us in. You see, Paul's all about beachheads, not bunkers. And so he says, pray. Pray that I will be able to take some ground against the enemy in this place. I wonder, what are we praying for when we pray for others? I've had to ask myself this question, like, what do I pray for my kids? What do do I pray for saints God has laid on my heart? I got to say, too often I pray for things like safety and comfort. And that's not always a bad thing to pray for. Don't hear me saying that. But the more I read the Bible, the more I've become aware, like, I'm kind of missing an important side of prayer here. After all, if life is a war, then the assumption is, guess what? We're not always going to be comfortable as Christians. Didn't Jesus say something about that, in fact? We can, however, always be equipped for whatever battle it is he has placed us in. And so listen, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for my kids. I want to pray that we will stand firm against the devil's schemes. Can I know that's God's will for me to pray for that? Yeah, it's in his word. I want to pray to bear fruit for the sake of the kingdom. Is that God's will for all of those who are in Christ? Oh, yeah. And so I can pray that in confidence for you. I want to pray that we would be bold in our witness, that we would take beachheads as a church, that my kids would walk into this world boldly and fearlessly for the gospel of Christ. So there we have it. We are armed with prayer, and we are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers all the time for all the saints. How's it going? How's that going? The last thing I want right now is for a spirit of guilt to overcome us in this room because 99.9% of us will go, eh, it's not going so good. Yeah? I mean, not one, I don't know one person who says, yeah, my prayer life is everything I want it to be. So let's get rid of the guilt and ask ourselves the question, then, so what? So if that's where we find ourselves, what are we going to do about it? You see, I've come to discover, even about myself, like I have all the intentions in the world to develop a better prayer life. I want to. I really want to. The problem is, I don't plan for it. And if we want to develop a prayer life like we're talking about here, you got to have a plan. you got to set aside a time you got to set aside a place. It's got to be non-negotiable. you got to say, I really believe I'm in a war. And I really believe that without prayer, I'm going to have a hard time winning this war. you got to believe that Christ wants you to take beachheads in this world. Not just the super spiritual people, but you to take beachheads in this world for him. So I wonder if you can answer that question on the bottom of this section of the notes there. Do I have a plan for arming myself with prayer? If you don't, and you want to, then what's it going to be? How are you going to do it? It's not a guilt thing. It's an invitation. It's an invitation God has given you. Come and commune with me and arm yourself. Arm yourself for the fight for your faith. So prayer is the first resource we've been armed with in this battle, and that's been pretty straightforward in this text. But as I mentioned, I see another one Paul alludes to as he closes this letter that's also vitally important if we want to have victory, and namely, we are armed with fellowship. Now, before you think and check out here, like, oh, no, fellowship. 
Let's just stop and say, I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood and abused words in the church today. So don't just think you know what I mean when I say fellowship or what Paul means when he says fellowship. Let me tell you what fellowship is not. Fellowship is not any old human interaction. Sometimes you'll see commercials like, come and join us for some fellowship at the, you know, the dating forum thing. No, no, no. That's not fellowship. It's not talking about the weather with your coworker. Neither is fellowship any old conversation with another Christian. I think a lot of times they think, well, this is our word. And so if I'm just having a conversation with you, like this week, I was talking to a lot of the guys on staff about how this year the Cubs will win the World Series. That isn't fellowship. That's talking about sports. Third, fellowship isn't even friendship between Christians. So listen, if you invite some friends to your house and say, come on over and we're going to have some fellowship. The truth is, maybe you will and maybe you won't. Fellowship is more than friendship. It's more than hanging out. And it's definitely more than potluck dinners at church. The biblical usage of the term fellowship describes, and I'll do this slowly, unity and agreement in the church brought by the Spirit of God surrounding the work of God. Fellowship is unity and agreement in the church brought by the Spirit of God surrounding the work of God. That last part is the key. Fellowship happens when two or more people in the body of Christ join arms together, they put their hands to the plow, and they begin to go out into this world for the sake of the gospel. That's fellowship. Jeff used the great illustration last week, right? That shield of faith. They built those shields to be able to interlock with one another. That's the idea, right? That's fellowship. I interlock with other believers so that I can take ground in this world for the kingdom of God. That's when fellowship's taking place. Now, you might ask, where do I see this in this text? Well, look again at verses 19 and 20. I'm not going to read them, but listen. Paul's hundreds of miles away from the Ephesians, but I'll ask you a question. Are they experiencing fellowship in those verses? Pray for me for an opportunity to fearlessly proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's some serious fellowship. More directly, I see it in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Now read verse 22 out loud with me on your notes. It says, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Now, Tychicus is briefly mentioned in Scripture only five times, but though the mentions are brief, we can deduce some pretty revealing conclusions about him. Number one, we can deduce that he almost certainly was a convert of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Isn't that interesting? Paul was in Ephesus for two years, and it's almost certain this is where Tychicus came to know Jesus Christ. He was also one of the seven who accompanied Paul on his way back to Jerusalem before Paul was arrested. And then we know from this text that Paul absolutely 100% trusted Tychicus as a partner in the gospel, which means he had, what? Fellowship with him. Deep fellowship with him. In fact, it was almost certainly Tychicus who delivered this letter to the Ephesian church and who delivered the letter to the Colossian church as well. And what is the reason Paul is sending Tychicus to them? Did you see it there at the end of verse 22? It's not just to give more information. It's to what? Encourage them. Encourage them in what? To have better potluck dinners as a church? Encourage them in their fight for the faith. 
Encourage them in their pursuit of Christ. Encourage them to live a life worthy of the calling of the gospel. That's fellowship. And the reason I'm pointing this out as we close this series, because I want you to understand something, friend. You're not fighting this battle alone. It isn't how God defined, designed the church. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. God designed his church so that there would be other believers who could stand with you, who could stand with me in this fight. We can encourage one another, just like Tychicus encouraged Paul, just like the Ephesians encouraged Paul, just like Tychicus is about to go and encourage the Ephesians. What an encouragement it is to be a part of the family of God. I'll say it again. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find an isolated believer. Nowhere. This is why we often say here, you cannot grow in your faith unless you are surrounding yourselves with some others who can encourage you in your journey. I have seen it dozens and dozens of times. One of the number one things I'll say to somebody who's new to the faith is you got to make sure you find some other people to encourage you in your journey. And when those people don't do that, I hate to say it, but a lot of times they fall away. They've never linked their shield with someone else and it's pretty hard to fight this battle on your own. So listen, if you're looking for meaningful, mutually encouraging relationships, I got to tell you, there's no place to find them like the body of Christ. People who will love you through thick and thin, people who will stick with you through all your imperfections, people who will roll up their sleeves with you and fight this fight. Are these people perfect? Oh no. I'm not perfect. None of you are perfect. And yet somehow God has brought us together as imperfect people in fellowship, so that we can live the life he's called us to live. There's too many defeated Christians, too many. And I just encourage you, if that's where you find yourself, find a Tychicus, find a Paul. You can't do it alone. It's not how God designed it. So I'll ask you on your notes there, am I experiencing true fellowship in the gospel? As I'm talking during this time, friend, do you have some people who come to your mind? Do you have some Tychicuses in your life? Some people who can encourage you and pray for you and get to work with you living out the gospel? You know, that's our vision for life groups. Life groups aren't perfect. And yet the whole point is to get in a community of fellowship with some other believers to study the word of God together and then encourage one another to live out the word of God in this world. I think about this fellowship, and honestly, I'm just speaking in pure human terms now. I don't know where I'd be without the fellowship of other believers. I don't know where I'd be without David Lang in junior high school. I don't know where I'd be without Aaron Kerr and Matt Irons, who when I got to high school, I didn't want anything to do with Jesus because that was nerdy. But they came alongside of me, and they fellowshiped me. And encourage me in my walk, in my faith. I don't know where I'd be without 18 brothers in Christ who I still meet with every year from college. Who have encouraged me in the journey. I don't know where I'd be without my wife. Who has pushed me to pursue Christ. To, per, to live a life worthy of the gospel. I don't know where I'd be without my men's group on Saturday morning. I don't know where I'd be without you, Cherry Hills. You encourage me in my faith. That, that's fellowship. And that's how God has designed this whole beautiful thing to be. So here, as we close this message this morning, we're going to do what we've done many times throughout this series, which is take a moment of silence, just a minute or two of quiet reflection, and to invite the Holy Spirit of God, not just to speak in my words, but now to speak to you personally. And I have a little question there at the bottom of your notes. It basically just said, is God prompting you 
in any area as a result of this message. Here's what I want to say. Write it down. And in a spirit of fellowship, I think it might be important for you to tell somebody else about that so that they can hold you accountable as you run your race in faith. I'm going to come back after this time and sort of close out this whole series. But why don't we bow our heads and just invite the Lord to speak to us now. Friends, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, we're closing our series this morning. And as I thought about how to close this whole series, I thought it would be fitting for us to end with some prayer and fellowship. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in a spirit of fellowship, would it be all right if I prayed for you? I want to pray two things. I want to pray that we would continue to be convinced of who we are in Christ. And I want to pray that as we're convinced of that, we would live a life worthy of the calling he's given us. So would you bow your heads with me and receive this as a gift? Lord, your word is living and active and breathing. It is transforming. It is powerful. And we say to you, we are grateful that some 2,000 years ago you inspired Paul in a prison cell to write this letter to a church that was gathering and that we can still receive from it today. That is amazing. And boy, have we received. Boy, have we been fed. You have reminded us these last 26 weeks, friends, that if we are in Christ, we are saints. Help us to be convinced of that. That you have chosen us You chose me. You chose us. That we are adopted as sons and daughters into your family. That we are redeemed. You have bought us at a great price. That we are sealed in the spirit. You will not let us go. That we have been made dead to sin and alive to Christ. Praise God. That we are saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. That we are your handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good things that we have been reconciled not only to you, but to one another, that you have brought us together as a body to be unified, that we are your temple, that we are sharers together in the gospel. Convince us of these things today and every day. Convince us of who we are if we are in Christ. 
And Lord, as we find ourselves being convinced of those things, we want to live a life pleasing to you. We want to live a life worthy of the identity you've given us. So Lord, help us to mature. Let us be people who discover our spiritual gifts and use them for the body of Christ. Let us be people who put off those things that hinder us. Things like anger and malice and stealing and unwholesome talk. Sexual immorality, Lord, put those things off. And let us put on things like love and truth and grace and righteousness. Let us walk in the light as Jesus in the light. Let us shine brightly in this world. Let us make the most of the time you've given us here on earth by being filled with the Holy Spirit again and again and again. Let us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in our marriage, in our families, in our workplaces. And Lord, let us put on the armor of God and equip ourselves with prayer and fellowship so that we can take beachheads in this world, not just dig bunkers. And now I would invite you to open up your eyes. And I want to close by reading the very last words of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. And here's how we're going to do it. This is going to be like our benediction. You're going to stand right now. Instead of me just praying this over you, I want you to think about the people you're standing next to or the people who are behind you or the people who are on the other side of the room for you. And let's pray this prayer together in a spirit of fellowship for one another. So as you pray this, pray for all those around you now. Ready? Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen. If you need prayer after the service, we'll be down front. For the rest of you, be convinced of who you are in Christ and live a life worthy of his calling. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Love you.